So grateful for our church, for uh, our praise team. So grateful for Blade Bridges playing the violin for us this morning. Uh, Grateful for how our staff comes together and helps uh, every other area of ministry to make sure that uh, we're engaged and involved in serving uh, all the whole church. So Please turn your Bibles to 2 Samuel, if you will, 2 Samuel. We'll look at chapters 16 and much of chapter 17 today. Well, as we've studied first and 2 Samuel, we've learned that David's life has not been easy. And yes, some of his wounds have been self-inflicted, but not all of them. As you know, secretly anointed at a young age to be the next king of Israel after God had rejected Saul's reign, David did enjoy some privileges. He was brought into the palace. He was serving there in the palace and that brought him into close proximity with King Saul. But those benefits, those privileges, quickly turned into trials and made his life quite difficult. For years, David lived on the run. He was in exile as King Saul and his army were hunting David, seeking to kill him. Now, as we've seen over the course of the past several weeks, as a direct result of his sin, David was suffering various consequences. His own son Absalom had turned on him and was seeking to seize the throne. Last week, we began uh, by we began watching David make the quick decision to leave Jerusalem and all the conversations he had with people as he was leaving Jerusalem. And in David's life, he had lots of opportunities to wait on God during difficult times. And when I say he had lots of opportunities, I don't think that David saw this as a good thing, for just being honest. But he had lots of opportunities. And the same is true for us in this room, friends. We have opportunities to wait on God, to do what God will do during difficult times because none of us are immune. And whether our trials are spiritual or mental or relational or emotional or physical or maybe a combination of all of those, life can be hard. In fact, some in this room are in uncharted territory right now, don't even know what the next move needs to be. Some feel like they're stuck in a current that's headed towards a waterfall and they don't know how to get to safety. Well, in times like these, waiting on the Lord is not easy. However, where else can we turn? Where else can we turn? Today, we're going to learn from Scripture some principles as to what we ought to be doing or thinking when we're waiting on the Lord. So if you will, please stand. We're going to read in 2 Samuel chapter 16. 2 Samuel chapter 16. And we'll begin here, verses 1 through 14. When David had passed a little beyond the summit, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met him with a couple of donkeys saddled, bearing 200 loaves of bread, 100 bunches of raisins, a hundred of summer fruits, and a skin of wine. And the king said to Ziba, Why have you brought these? And Ziba answered, The donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, the bread and the summer fruit are for the young men to eat, and the wine for those who faint in the wilderness to drink. And the king said, And where is your master's son? 
And Ziba said to the king, Behold, he remains in Jerusalem, for he said, Today the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father. Then the king said to Ziba, Behold, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. And Ziba said, I pay homage. Let me ever find favor in your sight, my lord the king. When King David came to Baharim, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera. And as he came, he cursed continually. And he threw stones at David and all the servants of the king David. And all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. And Shimei said as he cursed, Get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you. You are a man of blood. Then Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and take off his head. But the king said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? If he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, Curse David, who then shall say, Why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and to all his servants, Behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjaminite leave him alone? And let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me, and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. So David and his men went on the road, while Shimei went along on the hillside opposite him, and cursed as he went, and threw stones at him, and flung dust. And the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan, and there he refreshed himself. Let's pray. Lord, as we now give our full attention to your word, we're praying that you would speak to us. We're praying that your spirit would set these moments apart and that we would learn, that we would trust, and that we would seek you, no matter our life circumstances, that we would live for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. Well, as we pick up the story here in chapter 16, we see that David is still on his way out of Jerusalem. You recall that he had made this decision to leave rather quickly as Absalom had proclaimed himself king and had a following and was on his way into Jerusalem. And David wanted to avoid a big conflict, so he left. And as we read the narrative, it seems that he left rather quickly. In fact, at the end of the chapter, we're going to see, well, we won't see today, but what we'll see ultimately is that they left so quickly they didn't have the needed supplies and the people were going to grow hungry. And, and this was an evidence of God's provision, even that Ziba had brought some food there for them to eat. We don't know how many people were with David, but we do know that the time of the conflict with Absalom, which we'll get into even next week, there were several thousand people with David. Well, as he left, a variety of people presented themselves to the king. We saw this last week. Several of these were friendly people. Some of them ultimately would have come along with David as he traveled into exile. But some of them, David said, no, I need you to stay back in Jerusalem and to be my eyes and my ears. So we saw this with the priests, Abiathar and Zadok, and then with his good friend, Hushai, who would now become a counselor to Absalom. You'll recall that David had instructed Hushai to go and to pledge his allegiance in some sense to Absalom so that um, he could work for David and against Absalom. 
Well, in the opening verses of chapter 16, David is going to meet two more people on his way out of Jerusalem. But these are not friends, even if they, one at least, may appear to be a friend. So the first thing we're going to see this morning, when we're waiting on God as life is hard, is that we ought to be discerning. We ought to be discerning. So the first person that David meets is Ziba. Ziba is the servant of the household of Saul and ultimately now the servant of one Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan. You'll recall in chapter 9 when David was looking for someone of Saul's household to show kindness and favor to, he learned of Jonathan's crippled son named Mephibosheth through a servant of Saul's house, this man, Ziba, the very one that we see today. Now, David takes in Mephibosheth, you recall, and he lavishes his grace and his love upon him. He is showing kindness because of his covenant that he had made with Jonathan. And the king then gives all the land of the household of Saul, the kingdom of Saul, to this one Mephibosheth. And then he appoints the servant of Saul's household, Ziba, to now serve Mephibosheth and to farm the land along with his sons on behalf of Mephibosheth. So as David is leaving Jerusalem, Ziba shows up with provisions for David and his household. And this is a good thing, right? It's a needed thing because they left in such a hurry these provisions. While they would not have been fully enough, they would have helped. Now, a literal rendering of the question that David asks in verse 2 of Ziba is, what are you doing with these things? What are you doing with these things? Now, Ziba doesn't actually answer David's question. Instead, he tells them what they're for. David says, what are you doing with these things? Ziba says, well, all these things are for you, right? The, the donkeys are for your family to ride on. The food are for the young men. And the wine are for those who would grow weary in the desert. You can give it to them to drink. Well, David immediately then asked Ziba about his master's whereabouts. Where is Mephibosheth. That's essentially what he's saying. Where is Mephibosheth? So Ziba responds by suggesting that Mephibosheth has turned on David. Notice what he's saying. He's saying, look, Mephibosheth believes now that God's judgment is on you and everything's turning to give him the kingdom of his father. So Ziba is saying to David, Mephibosheth is not your friend anymore. Mephibosheth thinks that he ultimately is going to become the king again. And to this, David responds, okay, everything that is Mephibosheth's is now yours. So when Ziba first shows up, we get the idea that David is a little skeptical. What are you doing with these things? Right? Essentially saying, look, does Mephibosheth know that you have these things? Well, what are you doing with these things? things. And when we read that Mephibosheth has turned against David, our hearts in a sense go out to David, don't they? Because we think, wait a minute, David showed Mephibosheth great kindness and great generosity and great love. And, and if this is true, this is one of the most ungrateful things that we could ever imagine. And David apparently is quick to believe Ziba. I mean, look, Ziba's being kind, and Ziba's giving food, and Ziba's helping David even in these moments. Now, we have the benefit of knowing what is actually going to happen. In fact, in chapter 19, as David is returning into Jerusalem after having defeated the revolt against him and Absalom being dead, David is going to meet with Mephibosheth, and Mephibosheth is going to tell David, 
my servant Ziba has deceived me. He's not being honest with you. Perhaps, friends, if David was being a little more discerning, he may have seen Ziba's ploy to get on his good side just in case David survives Absalom's coup attempt. Notice, friends, that Ziba did not offer to go with David into exile. All his other friends were willing to go with David into exile, but not Ziba. Why? Because that's too risky for a guy who's looking out for himself. Why go into exile with the king? Because if he went into exile with the king, but then Absalom won and took the throne for good, then he would be on the wrong side. He would be on the out and there would be no hope. Second, if David had been more discerning, he may have recognized how ridiculous it sounded that Mephibosheth could have thought that the kingdom would become his. Not just because he was a cripple, but because this was a coup attempt by Absalom, and Absalom wasn't about to give the throne to anyone else because he was arrogant himself. Now, in the end, we know that God protected David from great harm, but we do see the need here to exercise discernment in our lives. We are called to be sober minded. We are called to be thoughtful. We are called to discern right from wrong and and good from bad. And friends, we need discernment to judge people. And we need discernment to judge situations. And we need discernment to judge information that comes our way. The author of Hebrews tells us to long for solid food, Hebrews chapter 5, because solid food is associated with maturity as it corresponds to having discernment to know between good and evil. We're called to discernment. Paul tells the church at Colossae not to be taken captive by empty worldly philosophies. And if we're not gonna be taken captive by empty worldly philosophies, then we need discernment so that we would see the foolishness of such thinking, the the. Uh, and result of such thinking, and to know what the truth is. John tells the church to test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because there are many false prophets in the world. Friends, we need to know that deception is generally couched in friendliness. Deception is generally couched in friendliness, or in something that is presented as a benefit to you. I mean, think about that. Why would we otherwise be deceived? Why would we be deceived by something that's not gonna be benefiting us, that does not seem to have our good in mind? Ziba came, and Ziba said, look at all this great stuff I'm giving you, and by the way, you can believe me. And while we always need to exercise discernment, how much more in times of difficulty? How much more in times when our emotions can get the best of us? The enemy wants to deceive us and so often does so by trying to appear friendly or wise and so often in times of difficulty. That's how Satan worked in the garden. Remember Adam and Eve were being tempted to eat of this fruit and did God really say you can't eat this fruit? Oh yeah, we can't eat it, we can't touch it. Well, he just doesn't want you to eat it because he knows that in the day that you eat of it, you're going to be like him. 
He's tempting them with something that, quote, on the surface might benefit them. Right? You'll know good and evil. You'll be like God. You'll have this knowledge. Here, David, you can believe me. Look at all this provision that I'm giving to you. Now, for us, the deception might be, oh, it's okay to engage in this. It's okay to do this. You have freedom in Christ. Oh, don't worry about forgiving that person. I mean, they really wronged you. I mean, they treated you poorly. You don't have to forgive that person. Oh, go ahead and do it. Nobody's going to know. You're going to feel better. You're going to feel good. And, and nobody's going to get hurt. Just, just do it. You know, if God really loved you, he wouldn't hold anything back from you. He would just want you to, to do whatever it is you're thinking. He, he wouldn't do that. Church, we need to exercise discernment. We need to exercise discernment. And if we're going to, then we've got to know God's will. We've got to know God's will, and we've got to be in tune with the Holy Spirit. And beyond that, we would be wise to seek godly counsel when we're faced with situations in our life. Be discerning. But second, expect God to be faithful to his character. In difficult times, when you're waiting on the Lord, expect that God will be faithful to his character. So as David continues towards the Jordan River, along the hillside, shows, uh, a man shows up named Shimei from the house of Saul, and he begins to hurl insults and stones and dust at David and his people. And, and Shimei was certain that God was judging David because of his violence against the household of Saul. Now, you know this because we've been studying it. David took every opportunity not to be violent against the household of Saul. Remember opportunities he had to kill Saul. Remember people who, who did wrong, David would, would judge them harshly. But Shimei was certain of God's will. He was certain that God was punishing. He was, he was judging David right now because of his violence towards the household of Saul. And this went on and on, this, this cursing and this rock throwing until Abishai, Joab's brother, grew tired of it and suggested that he go and take care of Shimei. And that's when David responded. That's when David rebuked, not Shimei, but Abishai. The king humbles himself and he wonders aloud if God had put it on Shimei's heart to curse him. Now verse 12, let's look at that again, is an interesting verse. Verse 12 reads in our translations, and most translations reads this way. So, excuse me, wrong chapter, verse 12 it may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me or affliction done to me and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. This is what most modern translations, how most modern translations uh, understand this verse. However, in the traditional Hebrew text, the word is not afflic affliction, but iniquity. In other words, perhaps God will look on my iniquity and more or less be gracious to me. See, David understands that he is under God's judgment. He understands that he is a man of violence, but not in the way that Shimei thought he was a man of violence. He was a man of violence because he slept with another man's wife and then had that man, the husband, killed. David was guilty. And David was 
deserving of the insults and the chaos and whatever else may come his way. So when David says, I believe the right translation, that the Lord would look at my iniquity and the Lord would repay me for uh, good for his cursing today, that David is actually hoping in the character of God here. That David is trusting that God will be faithful to his character. He understands that the Lord is good and understands that the Lord is gracious, that he is slow to anger and that he is abounding in steadfast love. He's experienced it. He's experienced it. He knows God's character. He knows God's mercy. He knows God's grace. And he knows he's guilty. And everyone in this room is guilty. But God is still gracious. And God is still merciful. Psalm 3 is a psalm that is attributed to this moment in David's life. When he's on the run from Absalom, listen to the first two verses. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him and God. Well, we could understand why David would say those words, right? It makes sense. Like, he's on the run. His own son wants to kill him. His own son is trying to take the throne. He, he's be, going back into exile. We can understand that he would feel that way and that people would be saying those things. But listen to what he writes in verses 3 through 6. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me. My glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. How is it that David can say those words? How is it that David can sleep at a moment like this, when he's on his way out of Jerusalem because his son is trying to kill him and take the throne. How is it? I think the only answer is that David was confident that God would be faithful to his character. That God would be true to his character. Church, when waiting on God in difficult times, don't forget God's character. Don't forget God's promises. He's promised to never leave us or forsake us. He's promised to work for our good. He's promised to provide for our needs. He's promised that his grace is sufficient whatever we face. And that his grace is never late, but it's always there in the right time, all the time. Now, I'm not saying life is easy. Please hear me say that. Life's not a walk in the park. Life's incredibly difficult at times. But friends, that doesn't change the fact that God is good and gracious. That he's all wise and that he's perfect in all he does. It does not diminish his sovereignty. It does not diminish his power. And while things don't always go as we expect or as we want or even as we hope, where else can we turn but to the sovereign God? Where else can we turn but to the God who is faithful to his character? Now, I'm certain that the trials and hardships that we face in life have a purpose because the word of God tells us that. Even if we can't figure them out in the moment. We know ultimately that God is making us more like Jesus and this is what we need. And even if we can't figure it out, we can be certain that God will be true to his character. 
that he has our good in mind, and that this world is not our ultimate home. We also recall that he is worthy of all glory regardless. I love the song by Phil Wickham in Maverick City. Listen to the lyrics. I'm going to sing till my heart starts changing. I'm going to worship till I mean every word. Because the way I feel and the fear that I'm facing doesn't change who you are or what you deserve. I give you my worship. You still deserve it. You're worthy. You're worthy. You're worthy of my song. I'll pour out my praises in blessing and in breaking. I'll never stop singing your praise. I'm going to live like my king is risen. Amen? I'm going to preach to my soul that you've already won. And even though I can't see it, I'm going to keep believing that every promise you make is as good as done. And in blessing, in pain, you're worthy. Whether you say yes or no or wait, you're worthy. Through it all, I choose to say you're worthy. I'll never stop singing your praise. In the last verse, and when I finally see your face, I'll cry worthy. And when you wipe these tears away, I'll cry worthy. Above every other name, you are worthy. And I'll never stop singing your praise. Third, trust God to work his will. Trust God to work his will. So in uh, chapters excuse me, in chapter 16, verses 15 through 23, we have recorded for us Absalom's entry into Jerusalem and then his seeking advice from this famed counselor at the time, Ahithophel, okay? Ahithophel was a loyal person to David, but now he has switched his loyalties and he is with Absalom. And this is bad news for David. In fact, David Chapter 15, verse 31, praise, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. Turn his counsel into foolishness. So as Absalom enters Jerusalem, he's met by David's friend Hushai. Now remember, Hushai met David on his way out of Jerusalem. And David said, go back and present yourself as one who would be loyal to the king. So Absalom is surprised that he sees Hushai because he knows of the relationship between David and Hushai. And he questions him, what's going on? Why are you here? So Hushai crafts this message filled with double meaning. And he's able to convince Absalom that he too is switching loyalties. So in Jerusalem now, Absalom asks his counselor, uh, what should we do? And Ahithophel responds by telling Absalom that he should go to King David's concubines who are left there to take care of the house and to drive a wedge between he and his son by sleeping with them. So they go up on the roof, a place where one of David's sins took place, and we see that uh, another consequence for his sin comes true here. Well, the narrative continues in chapter 17, and let's read verses 1 through 4. Moreover, Ahithophel said to Absalom, let me choose 12,000 men and I will arise and pursue David tonight. I will come upon him while he is weary and discouraged and throw him into panic and all the people who were with him will flee. 
I will strike down only the king, and I will bring all the people back to you as a bride comes home to her husband. You seek the life of only one man, and all the people will be at peace. And the advice seemed right in the eyes of Absalom and all the elders of Israel. So we're not told specifically that, that Absalom asks Ahithophel about this, about what he should do. But Ahithophel goes ahead and says, okay, this is what we should do. We should go attack David right now. Essentially saying, go while he's weak, go while he's weary, and let's get this over with now. We'll just go strike the king. By the way, Absalom, you don't need to come with us. Let me just lead the army out and we'll take care of David and will secure the kingdom for you. Well, everyone, as we read here, thinks this is sound advice. Well, what happens next can only be explained by God's providence. For some reason, Absalom calls Hushai and asks for his advice as well. Well, not only does he ask for Hushai's advice, he tells Hushai everything that the other counselor had said, what his whole plan was. Now, this allows Hushai to try to systematically undermine Ahithophel's plan. Let's look at verses 5 through 14. Then Absalom said, call Hushai the archite also, and let us hear what he has to say. And when Hushai came to Absalom, Absalom said to him, thus has Ahithophel spoken. Shall we do as he says? If not, you speak. Then Hushai said to Absalom, This time the counsel of Ahithophel has given is not good. Hushai said, You know that your father and his men are mighty men, and that they are enraged like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. Beside, your father is an expert in war. He will not spend the night with his people. Behold, even now he has hidden himself in one of the pits or in some other place. And as soon as some of the people fall At the first attack, whoever hears it will say, there has been a slaughter among the people who follow Absalom. Then even the valiant man whose heart is like the heart of a lion will utterly melt with fear. For all Israel knows that your father is a mighty man and that those who are with him are valiant men. But my counsel is that all Israel be gathered to you from Dan to Beersheba as the sand by the sea for multitude and that you go to battle in person. So we shall come upon him in some place where he is to be found, and we shall light upon him as dew falls on the ground, and of him all the men with him, not one will be left. If he withdraws into a city, then all Israel will bring ropes to that city, and we shall drag it to the valley until not even a pebble is to be found there. And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, the counsel of Hushai the archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. So as you see, Hushai's advice to the king is the exact opposite of what the other counselor had to say. He says, actually, we need to wait a little bit because your father is a warrior and his men are warriors and they're upset right now. And if we go right now, it's not going to turn out well for us. And not only that, we need to wait because we need a bigger army. And not only that, Absalom, you need to be leading that army because you're the new king. So let's just kind of hold back and then let's kind of take care of this. Well, surprisingly, everyone values Hushai advice over Ahitophel's plan. Commentator Peter Leithart suggests that Hushai played to the king's fear and to the king's arrogance. 
His speech was filled with flattery and trickery. And other commentators suggest that, well, Ahifofel gave a brilliant speech, uh, had a brilliant plan. Hushai gave a brilliant speech. But verse 14 tells us what's going on behind the scenes. Verse 14 tells us what's going on behind the scenes. The Lord had ordained to defeat Ahithophel's counsel because he wanted to bring harm to Absalom. Friends, God is going to work his will. God is going to work his will. We can be sure of this. Sometimes God miraculously intervenes in a situation to bring about his will. Sometimes that's how it comes about. I mean, we think about the resurrection. God accomplishes his will to redeem sinners from their sin by raising the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. Romans chapter four, verse 25, Jesus was delivered over to death for our sin and raised for our justification. This was the will of God. This was the power of God who miraculously then brings forth Jesus from the dead. But even in redemption, we see other truths. Sometimes God works his will differently through the free choices of sinful human beings. This is true of the religious leaders, right? The religious leaders and and the Romans freely chose to crucify Jesus, and in doing so, they have guilt, even though they were accomplishing the will and the plan of God. Through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, there is forgiveness of sin, and there is eternal life. This is God's plan, yet God's plan is carried out by sinful, responsible humans. And what's true on a cosmic scale is true on a personal level as well. God is working his will. God is bringing about his intended purposes. I mean, it's not like our American government, right? Where any number of things can bring the system to a halt. In our government, things don't happen. Why? Because politicians can't agree on what's most important. And everyone is being led by their own ideologies. But with God, it's not that way. Nothing can thwart his purposes. Nothing can thwart his plans. He brings about his will because he is all powerful and his plan is bigger than we can imagine. In this situation, God was against Absalom. Though at one level we have to understand that God, through the free and sinful choices of Abner, Absalom, and David, brought all of this about. Now, Friends, it is true that some would deny that God knows the future. Some would deny that that God can actually know what the free choices of his creation would be because, because that would, at some level, make him responsible for evil. But friends, that's not what Scripture says. Scripture says that God is fully sovereign and that God is fully good and that he knows all things and that he is working his will. And this ought to comfort us because we can be certain that life is not left to chance. And while we face difficulties, we have to remember that God is still in control, that he still loves us and he is still working his will. And this gives us hope. Well, in verses 15 through 22, we see how Hushai passes along the information that he knows about the attack to the priests who then talk to some other, so the young men and 
then this message ultimately gets to King David. Verse 23 tells us that when Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, he saddled his donkey and went off to his own home in his own city. He set his house in order, and then he hanged himself. The question is, why would he have done that? Just because he couldn't take the shame of his counsel being rejected, maybe? Or perhaps more likely, he was now certain that David would succeed and that ultimately he'd be put to death anyway. In the end, we know that God works his will. Next week, we're going to see the end of Absalom's rebellion and how God works all things according to his purposes and his plans. But now will you pray with me? Lord, as we've looked to your word, we pray that you would help us to be discerning people. That we'd be confident that you are always working. That you are always working according to your character and to your nature. That you are accomplishing your purposes. God, give us grace as we wait in difficult times. Help us. Life's not easy, but you are good. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, today as we transition to a time of invitation, we are available to pray with you if you have needs on your heart, situations in your life that you're facing that you would like prayer for. We're here to rejoice with you. If God's doing something in your life, we'd love to know about it. We'd love to rejoice with you. If, if you're trusting in Christ and you're ready to be baptized, then we would love to connect with you and talk to you about that and, and celebrate with you over what he's doing. And we're here to counsel. If you have questions about the gospel or questions about what's happening in your life right now, we'd love to connect with you in that way. We can trust that God's at work, that his work is perfect. Would you stand and would you sing?